Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, on our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our focus, contemporary spirituality, and our guest today, Reverend Tiffany Barsotti. Uh, she is a spiritual medical intuitive counselor, master clinical past lives therapist, and researcher at HEAL and Thrive in Encinitas, California. Uh, many things we uh, would like to discuss with Tiffany today, and I first want to thank Tiffany. Thank you for taking the time to come on with us today. My pleasure. Great. Phil? Tiffany, yes, um, we could have uh, read all the things you're interested in and professionally, and it would have taken up the whole half hour. So, um, Given the richness of what your uh, work is, give us a background. What was your spiritual life like, uh, and how did you evolve into the work you do? Love the question. So we could say that I'm, I was reluctant on this path. I had... What the you know, I'm using my fingers to say quote unquote gifts when I was a kid are clairaudience, clairvoyance, claircognizance, and clairsentience. I, I kind of had it all as one big bang. And it felt that way to my psyche as a as a young person. And the the roughest part of that was that I had prophetic dreams that I thought I was the cause of. And I, I couldn't really differentiate myself. So my, my mom, who was trying to be supportive, wanted me to nurture them, but I didn't want anything to do with them. So I willed them away. And <laughs> long story short, 22 years in the entertainment industry, doing all kinds of other things that were important work, but not really my path. I ended up getting sick living across the street from Ground Zero in New York when the buildings were being taken apart. Mm. And that not when the buildings fell, but when mm -hmm. the the buildings that were that needed um, sort of dismantling and needed to be raised, um, that was a, another really bad time to be living down there. Anyway, I ended up getting very sick, and it was ultimately a wake up call. It was ultimately the the so called the so called spiritual two by four um, to wake me up and get me on the path. I had always been doing the work and always followed since I knew of it, Carolyn Mace's work and Norm Sheely's work, and had done personal study with the science of medical intuition when it was put out on Sounds True. So I was very familiar with their work. So when I went to my own, to a medical intuitive, and she said, okay, you need to get on your path. And in fact, it was kind of a rude awakening. She said, you have three days to make up your mind. So... I wanted to pretend like I didn't know what she was talking about, but I knew what she was talking about. And that's when I went in to start researching. I'm really editing the story. But when I went in to start researching, well, what's next for me? What's on my path? And what really, what am I here to do? And so the, the message was that I had been receiving my whole life and wanted to ignore is helping people to help themselves. And by what manner that was a little confusing to me. So knowing that I was turning myself to these so-called gifts of clairvoyance, claircognizance, clairsentience, and clairaudience, 
what did that really mean for me? Did I really want to open up those kind of files again? So I set out to go to school and I studied directly with Carolyn and many other modern mystics, Christine Page, Karen Kramasko, many other healers, um, as well as Norm, them being my direct mentors. And I got some skills around what I was doing and learned appropriate boundaries and did a lot of my own shadow work. And Mm -hmm. it was more like a mystery school. So long answer, but there you go. Very. Uh, Tiffany, I'm curious, uh, two questions. One is, uh, were there uh, or are there medical intuitives in your family, grandparents, parents, great-grandparents, cousins, or whatever? Because I've often, when I've spoken to people with similar uh, uh, skills or gifts, uh, sometimes that is the case. And also, the second part of the question, uh, when you first started working as a medical intuitive, was your first patient that you worked on yourself or was it someone else? Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, yes, no, there was nobody else in my family that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. I'm aware that my grandmother on my mother's side had sensitivity, but nothing that she would ever speak about or was vocal about. I only know that kind of in hindsight and spending a lot of time with her. Um, but she was never really a so-called intuitive. So, n- no. My mom is also sensitive, but it, it, not, nothing that is like where you hang a shingle kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of the question, I just lost track of. What yeah, was it? The other Sorry. part of the question is, when you started working as a medical intuitive, was your me. first focus yeah. yourself or was it someone else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, me, I always believe I'm being on the operating table first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I... I definitely did a lot of deep, deep, deep digging for myself and really did it got deep into the shadow aspects of my psyche and personality. And, um, really what I see is the, the goal is to link up personality uh, to soul and let that be life guidance. Let that be where I get taken on the path is because I have surrendered completely into that high self soulful relationship. So very much that's, that was, that was the goal. Yes, it was me first and straight out of the box. When I went to Holos university, which is where I studied with Norm and Carolyn, um, we had did case studies that were very in depth and I had very difficult cases from the first week. So in addition to me, there were others. I, um, I want to ask you a couple of uh, a personal question about the the difficulties and challenges um, about uh, around um, having the kind of uh, psychic gifts that you apparently uh, were born with. Um, I've known other people who, in that kind of category, and some of them would refer to it as a curse as well as a blessing that it carries with it certain difficulties of, you know, sort of uh, uh, having those sensitivities and being in the world. And, and the other uh, part of it, if you, if you don't mind the two-in-one question, is some of those people, um, and, and many of the uh, gurus address this, um, it can be so fascinating and, and so... Um, enticing to uh, dig into and cultivate those abilities that 
there's a danger of losing sight of the um, deeper spirituality and happiness and fulfillment that comes uh, independent of those kind of things. Can you talk about, in other words, you can become attached to them. Um, and people have warned about that. Have you had to deal with either or both of those kinds of uh, phenomena? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate this. I very much have considered the gifts that, uh, the so-called gifts, that I had very much a curse. Like I said, the, the whole prophetic dream thing when I was a kid, I was really tortured by that. It's, it's very harrowing to have dreams and, and insights and visions and things and then see them on the news or in the newspaper or, or however they may have shown up in my world. And I, I could disconnect myself from not being the cause of it at that time. Mm. So that's also what made me very reluctant on this path is feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to open myself back up to this. And I really... It was uncomfortable. I didn't like most of what I saw. And and then to the degree that you feel uh, responsible or what am, what am I supposed to do with this information, et cetera. So, yeah, there, there's definitely that tension in there. Today, I have much more um, of a healthy understanding and more boundaried around it. And I am not bombarded like I used to be. Mm. So that was sort of like a, an agreement, like, okay, I'm willing to to walk this path and do what I need to do and completely surrender myself to it. And we need to have some rules of operation and engagement here. So if we can see um, each other's points of view here as I'm negotiating with these sort of spiritual hierarchy, then yeah, then we're good to go. I, but as far as what you bring up about um, the enticement and attachment and all of that, Oh, there's this thing about, you know, a spiritual egotism. And I, I, I sniff that out very quickly in, in others, and I find it very unattractive. And I certainly would guard against that for in, within myself. I am not attached to any of this. Where I would say that it gets difficult is in seeing and dealing with people's traumas a lot. And I, I don't feel anything anymore. I don't, I'm not empathic. In fact, I had to train myself out of that deep empathic method of knowing because that is an assault to my body and psyche. And so now I can practice sort of detached compassion where I can see things and sense them without having to be engaged in them. And that really doesn't allow space for my ego to come in. I, I don't, have an attachment to right or wrong. If there's something that I am being impressed upon, then it's probably a truth somewhere, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, something that needs to be addressed. And I always ask for permission to, if I'm engaged with somebody as a client, then I do have permission, but I never walk up to somebody. Norm always called it psychic malpractice. If I had mm -hmm. some piece of information and I'm going to walk up to somebody with it, that is inappropriate. So I don't do those sort of practices. Mm -hmm. uh, Tiffany, uh, do you engage yourself uh, uh, in uh, spiritual practices on a daily basis? And uh, are, are there spiritual practices to enhance your psychic abilities or your, your, your gifts? Uh, or uh, like anyone else, uh, you engage in spiritual practices to sort of uh, 
keep, keep overall balance in life. Absolutely. And one of my, so I like to mix it up a little bit. I've been trained in TM. I've been trained in Vipassana. I love Vipassana. Um, what I have found in, and what was really interesting is a couple years ago, I would sit in meditation for two hours, four hours, you know, these extended periods of time, not on retreat, but in regular, like everyday life. Mm -hmm. And one day I heard a very clear message and it was get up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay, what, what is that? And it was, it, it, the, the message was really, this isn't about sitting here on your mat or your cushion. It's about every word you speak. It's about every step you take. It's about every handshake you make. It's about every eye contact you make. It's it's about every touch. Every aspect of what you're living needs to be that. So I, I really, I, I'm human. I still sort of fall off my own um, cushion, you could say, at times. But this is really my daily emphasis in practice. And yes, I make time for yoga. Sometimes it's walking. Sometimes it is um, it's running. Sometimes it's skiing. Sometimes it's it's all kind of different um, aspects of of life of contemplation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, great, um, Tiffany. I'm looking at the a variety of. Um, modalities that you work with and a few of them uh, catch my eye. One um, is you seem to be doing uh, some work with past lives. Um, I'm curious how that enters into your work, how you um, uh, engage in, in, in helping people uh, on a personal level with respect to uh, past lives, how it, how it, well, you know what I'm saying. How do you use that in, uh, uh, to help people in this life? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. First of all, we have so much content in this life. We don't always need to go to a past life. And it used to be that I ran a lot of my sessions beginning there because it is such powerful work, beginning in a past life, meaning uh, listening to a person or watching their body language and using that as a, a portal into a distant past, able to access information that's having an influence on the here and now. And many years ago, I made that switch to pay attention to when the subconscious is giving us messages about when it's appropriate to enter into that space. And the, the, the thing that I find here is that the subconscious is never going to bring anything to our level of awareness that we cannot handle. So if I'm following those seeds and the, the little nuggets that are give, being given to me in my awareness and in working with another person, then I'm honoring where that person's at. The other thing that I kept finding is that we could go and do brilliant work and pull up really a root cause, because that's really my emphasis and focus, is to find the the root cause emotionally, psychically, spiritually, energetically, where, wherever it is that we need to work, and, and get the truth there. And there can be 
time. But if we don't have the skills in current time, the cognitive ability to be able to handle what comes up, then I'm not doing anybody any service. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how I work. Mm -hmm. uh, Tiffany, if uh, somebody comes to you or a any uh, authentic uh, medical intuitive, what 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 is expected of them? What what's going to make that session with you? Uh, most effective? What do they bring to the table? Dennis, do you mean uh, another medical intuitive? No, let, let's say somebody comes to you for help, for a medical oh, okay. reason. You're, uh, you as a medical intuitive, you having the gifts uh, and abilities that you have, uh, is there a certain uh, level of receptivity, uh, of openness that, uh, that, that the patient, the client, needs to have mm-hmm. to get the full benefit of what you have to offer them? It helps, um, but there's been people that have come to me that don't necessarily believe, and that might be where we have to begin our work. Mm -hmm. Because if a person is, I don't advertise, I don't do anything where usually how people find me is based on referrals. Right. And, and, you know, maybe other like, like what, like this podcast or other things that I'm doing. So I don't, I don't hang a shingle in that way, but. So by the time somebody's found me, there's usually a receptivity to to that anyway. However, I have had people sit across from me, and I can tell that they don't believe, and it just feels like a test. And so I will say, listen, you know, I'm not into parlor games here. If if you want to get down and get to work and, and work on something that's important, this is what I see that we could be working on. But if it's not resonant with you, and this is not where we need to be working, then this isn't a right fit. And right fit is important. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Tiffany, um, you, in some of uh, the modalities you work in, you intersect this um, spiritual focus and these um, kind of um, esoteric techniques with uh, science. And I'm, I'm uh, intrigued by um, something you're doing that has um, uh, brain research uh, involved with, this, particularly the reticular activating system and the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, could, tell us about that. Mm, yeah. So my master's thesis, Norm said I was crazy for pursuing this because we don't really have a way of measuring the reticular activating system. But these were ideas and thoughts that kept thinking me, so I couldn't let them go. And it was this this merge, this sort of nexus, if you will, of where I believe that there's a body-mind connection for the purpose of transcendence and presence. And, and to unpack that, I, I got into these structures of the brain and uh, the vagus nerve and the this little known chakra called the alta major, and I became fascinated with the fact that these everything that I just named is all piled right on top of each other, whether it be in the subtle energy body or in the physical body. The tenth cranial nerve, which wanders throughout the body, which is known as the vagus nerve, is the only nerve that wanders all throughout, connecting all of the organs and systems back to from gut to brain and everything in between. So that's a really fascinating piece because there's also a there's sympathetic nerve fibers as well as parasympathetic, which is rest and digest in the sympathetic system that actually makes us have more beta responses, being able to have responses to something, to get up and run when we need to, 
to wake up to, you know, a reticular activating system has to do with awake consciousness. So, but it's also, even when we're sleeping, if our house is on fire, it's the, the, the connection of our reticular activating system that's going to smell the smoke to wake us out of a deep sleep in order to preserve our lives. So this connection, this sort of layering, how everything is literally right on top of each other is extremely fascinating. The Alta Major Chakra is this little-known chakra that's known in many cosmologies as the mouth of God. So it's this receptivity, this ability to be able to receive in information from other sources, let's say, uh, as well as to what cognitively to actually do with it, as well as what messages get sent to all of the organs and systems based on what it is that we are living and seeing. So there's, mm-hmm. there's science behind it, but there's no way for me to measure much to my con- particular activating as a system at this time. Mm-hmm. And I am staying up on top of fMRIs mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> trying to pay attention to what we can discover here. What has right. been discovered since the writing of my thesis is that we believe that the vagus nerve is the mediating nerve to this gut brain axis. Mm-hmm. So that that's a lovely discovery. Yeah. Yeah, Tiffany, Ooh, let me follow up. Yeah, go a ahead, minute, uh, Dennis. Go ahead. Um, um, according to something you you said, the Alta Major is a, a chakra independent of the chakras we're familiar with, uh, or uh, I don't mean independent, but in addition to. Um, that's located at the back of the neck, uh, by the brainstem. Now, uh, Yogananda used to talk a lot about that exact location as where a prana, the primal energy, enters the body. And he called, he referred to it in our Western anatomical language as the medulla oblongata. Is there a relationship there between those things and what you're doing? Yes. And... When I read your book, your recent book on the biography of Yogananda, and you know it was it was so fun because I have this fancy I love this way of connecting with books. I will have an intention and go and open it. And I randomly opened your book to of which I verified that there was only one reference to in the index, which <laughs> is this region of the body and uh, the medulla. And what's so fascinating, and I'm so glad I'm not still writing my thesis because I find evidence for this every single day. So in the uh, God Talks with Arjuna, the Bhagavad Gita, Yogananda's version, mm-hmm. in the first, the first chapters one through five, so the first volume, on page 105, there is a, um, a, an editor's note, like a, um, a footnote. And there is a, per- a, I'm not sure of exactly which scientist it was right now, but there, it breaks it down saying that what we feel that Yogananda may have been talking about connecting to the medulla avangada is actually with the reticular activating system. Mm-hmm. So this was something, when I read this, I almost fell out of my chair. I was mm. just like, yes, exactly. So these nerve fibers to understand, to go more deeply, what... Yogananda was uh, sort of bringing into us is this region of connecting mind-body. So that bigger area is the medulla. 
But if we get more refined and more pinpointed, it's the RAS. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, it's a, it, it, reticular yeah. activating the reticular yeah, formation. Yeah, yeah. which seems uh, science would say that is the area that sort of maintains overall consciousness. But it's, what's interesting is I, I was speaking to a, uh, one of the Yogananda monks uh, a couple of years ago, and he was saying that I think it was when Yogananda passed or whatever. He said that area, uh, physically, you know, by the back of the neck and all, that when Yogananda passed. It was literally hot, hot back there, as if that's where mm -hmm. the, you know, talking about past lives or entering and leaving a prana, that's where sort of uh, that all takes place. But let me ask you, in connection to all this, and we've discussed this with others, do you think that human consciousness uh, is totally brain dependent or exists um, uh, independent of the brain? Mm, absolutely independent of the brain. Uh, it, that's the, the hard problem, right? Because yes, there's consciousness, but in my thesis, what I write about is that we have a small C consciousness and a big C consciousness. Okay. And the, the merging of these two is our work. And so this point that I was bringing up earlier about the personality and soul, that if we can merge these aspects of, our, of ourselves from the big C consciousness to our small C consciousness, that, that that's really what I feel that our work is in, in humanity, is to bring as above, so below, as below, so above. Uh, Tiffany, um, we have a limited time available, but I, I want to ask you about um, a, a, another intriguing area of your work, which uh, speaks about uh, evolving... Uh, from an archetype of survival to the archetypes mm -hmm. of grace. Uh, tell us what you mean by those terms and how you uh, work with that on a, on a practical level. Oh, gosh, this, that's a big topic and love it. So you, uh, Carl Jung, um, Ed, Edwin uh, Schwinbacher, I think, I think I'm Schwinbecker, I think I'm saying his, I'm butchering his name. So many of these really very thoughtful people in psychology and mysticism, including Joseph Campbell, were speaking of these archetypes. And Carl Jung and um, Edwin Schwinbacher, I'm, I, think, I'm, I know I'm butchering his name, I apologize. He, I think he's passed on, but um, hopefully he's not rolling in his grave. <laughs> he, they spoke of these archetypes of survival. And then Carolyn Mace took that work a lot further and sort of said that we had these 12 archetypes, but four are naturally that we all have. And the four that she names and that are not Jung's work referenced are the, the victim, the saboteur, the inner child, and the prostitute. All four of those, all of us have. And to a certain amount of um, sort of personalization, we have a unique sort of child type of archetype. So one day I was just sort of having conversations about forgiveness and contemplation and, and what does it mean to forgive and what the heck are we doing on this karmic wheel anyway? We need to sort of advance this idea off of the notion of survival. What if it wasn't just coming from survival, but actually le really learning to be in our lives and enjoy and have fun and, and feel into what it is to be alive. I mean, essentially, it's been referred to that we've won the lottery to be here on Earth. So 
where is the joy in that? And if we got off the karmic wheel and stopped producing the same stuff that's been done in prior times, what does that mean? So I started playing with this idea of what if we evolve these archetypes of survival to the archetypes of grace? And what I see grace as is really a living entity. Grace is something that we sort of can fill the chalice of all of the time by our random acts of kindness, by our thoughtfulness, by gratitude, by paying attention to where it is that we're going. I have my own version of the triune brain, which is the hind brain is know your history. The mid brain is to know thyself. And the fore brain, the neocortex, is to know where you're going. And if we're not operating from survival, then we are engaged in a direction that we, uh, of our choosing. Where are we going? So these archetypes of grace, what I'm proposing, are that the prostitute archetype moves from prostitute to authentic self, to an individuated self, not feeling that the value of our individual person is coming from any outside source, that we are enough and that we are lovable. And the from saboteur moves into the lover of self, the discerner of truth, and doesn't have to offer us this inner criticism all the time of sabotaging thoughts. And it becomes a conscious choice maker that we sort of befriend. And the victimize, the victim moves into the empowerer, the empowerer of self and the empowerer of others. So that we're not looking to take anybody else's power away from anybody. And we're looking to sort of reinstall our innate powers within us to be able to make conscious choice. And then the child stays the inner child filled with whimsy and playfulness and joy and joie de vie, and, but is emancipated and is not being parented by our parents anymore, but realizes that the richness of that inner relationship that we get to enjoy life in a together way. And that's freedom. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. I feel like we're just scratching the surface and there's a lot more we can go into more deeply, but uh, time is limited. So we thank you for coming on and thank you for giving us the time, but you have to promise you'll come back on so we can go into this uh, more deeply. And uh, please uh, tell everyone your website because there's a tremendous amount of uh, uh, information there that uh, I think people will enjoy and learn a lot from. Thank you. The, the website is Heal and Thrive, H-E-A-L-A-N-D, spelled out, Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E. So, and my thesis is actually, the full copy of it is there in several papers I've written. And, and yeah. We'll, we'll have that all posted up. Phil, any final points from you? No, I just want to thank Tiffany for being with us today. And uh, I second your uh, suggestion that we uh, have her back. Uh, especially if you have any new discoveries about the uh, brain connection. Uh, yeah. keep, us, keep us in the loop. Absolutely. I shall do. Okay. Yeah, and I'm, I am writing a book on the uh, archetypes of survival to the archetypes of grace. Okay, you'll come Please. on and promote it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you nice. audience. Thank <laughs> Love you your audience. Bye. I'm one of them. Great. Okay. Right. Over now. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Be well. Bye.